Good morning. Today's reading is uh, on 1000, page 1079 in the Church Bibles, and it's John 12, verses 1 to 35. So page 1079, John 12, 1 to 35. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about half a litre of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world's gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. And Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was only for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him.
Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Good morning. As we come to God's word, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us in your word, the Bible. We thank you for speaking to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, And as we come to him, as we come to your word together, we pray, will you speak to us and bring your words home to our hearts by your Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. If you're not a regular churchgoer, church is a bit weird, isn't it? And actually this passage that we've just heard from John's Gospel has all kinds of weird things going on in it, things that you wouldn't expect, things that you might find hard to understand. And right in the middle, uh, in uh, verse um, 13, we're on page 1080 of the Pew Bibles. Uh, I promise you, if you don't have it open, uh, it's going to be much harder going for the next 25 minutes or so. So I encourage you to, to open, open your Bible up uh, and, and look with me. The crowd is welcoming Jesus, waving their palm branches, and they shout this word, Hosanna. And it's a fascinating little detail, this. All the rest of Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, that's what uh, the crowd are quoting as they welcome Jesus into Jerusalem. All the rest of it is translated from Hebrew into Greek. Hebrew is the language that's the first testament of the Bible, the Jewish scriptures are written in. Psalm 118 is written in Hebrew. And presumably they're quoting it all in Hebrew. And John translates all of it into Greek except that one word, Hosanna. Which makes you think, okay, well, why has he done that? Hosanna, they cry. What does it mean? We'll turn back to Psalm 118 together in a moment. It's on page 616 if you uh, can't wait until that moment. Uh, But what you'll notice, they're quoting uh, verse 25. uh, And in our Bibles, it's translated. It doesn't say Hosanna. It says, Lord, save us. They're crying out, Lord, save us. They're calling out for salvation. But isn't that just one of the strange things that you encounter when you come into church? If you're not used to sort of churchy language, salvation, what does that even mean? I don't think the crowd calling Hosanna really know what it means. And in fact, I think there are three different versions of salvation, three different alternate versions of salvation operating in John chapter 12 that miss the point of why Jesus has come. 
And if you think about salvation in, in, in sort of wider context, uh, in, in, in our own context, I mean, what do you hear when you hear that word? I imagine we hear lots of different things. This morning, intrepid men and women will be running 26.2 miles around Brighton on the Brighton Marathon. And I feel for them. I really do. I have run one marathon. That was probably enough. Uh, But when I was uh, doing a lot more running than I do at the moment, uh, I uh, read a book by a chap called Dean Karnazes. Uh, And um, you might want to sort of, if your friends who run the marathon this morning seem a little bit too full of themselves, you might want to talk to them about Dean Karnazes. Uh, He wrote a book called 50-50. And um, the title refers to an extraordinary feat that he endeavoured to and indeed succeeded in accomplishing. He loves running Dean Karnazes to to the point at which it is... um, honestly, a bit pathological. And he loves it so much that he came up with this idea that he would run a marathon every day for 50 days. But that wasn't enough. That's the first 50. The second 50 is that he would do it in a different state in the United States each day. So, so he, he, he runs a marathon in one state, then gets on a bus or, or an aeroplane, goes to the next state, runs a marathon overnight, drives to the next state, runs a marathon. It's an extraordinary feat uh, of endurance. Uh, and, and through the book, he talks about the benefits people get from running, the benefits that are not just uh, physical, but psychic, psychological, relational, the ways that uh, groups of people, as they, as they gather to, to do something as, uh, in one sense, as crazy as running a marathon together, uh, the, the amazing sort of bonds that they build up and the amazing sense of achievement that they uh, develop. And this was the line in the book that really struck me. A marathon is not about running. It is about Salvation. We spend so much of our lives doubting ourselves, thinking we're not good enough, not strong enough, not made of the right stuff. The marathon is an opportunity for redemption. Opportunity because the outcome is uncertain. Opportunity because it's up to you and only you to make it happen. Only you can turn your far-fetched dream into reality. When Dean Karnazes uses the word salvation, he's talking about coming to a sense of agency, a sense of achievement, a sense of wholeness in yourself. The marathon in that sense is about salvation because it's about climbing a mountain higher than you thought you could ever climb, about being more than you thought you could ever be. And for the person who, in the midst of adversity and a sense of failure in their own life, sets about running a marathon and succeeds, it feels like salvation. It feels like, finally, something is right with the world. But when the crowd shout Hosanna, then they're not asking Jesus to give them a sense of greater sort of agency or personal efficacy. They're not asking for the ability to run a bit further than they thought they ever could. They're asking for much more than that, but even the crowd don't really understand what they're asking for when they call out for salvation. In fact, in this section of John's Gospel, there are at least three different views of what salvation might mean. 
And, and they're looking at salvation as a, as, as a bigger thing than, than just the individual. They're, they're looking at the nation. They're looking at the world. And they're saying, what would it mean for all to be as it should be? What would salvation mean? First of all, there are Jesus' enemies. In fact, you'll need to turn back uh, to the uh, previous chapter in order to really understand. But um, John points us back there in chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, Bethany is right by Jerusalem, uh, about two miles away, distance from here to Palmyra Square, something like that. He's right uh, by Jerusalem, just as the Passover uh, festival uh, begins. Uh, And and John is pointing us backwards in telling us that uh, to some things that have just happened. He's talked about, he's talking about the preparations that people are making for the Passover uh, and the fact that the chief priests and the Pharisees are looking out for Jesus. Crowds would come from all over Israel to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Historian Josephus, uh, writing sometime before AD 66, so uh, around the same time as these events in AD 30, describes a crowd of 2.3 million gathering in Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Everyone's there. And the chief priests and the Pharisees are, are, are scanning the crowd, and they've, they've got agents everywhere looking for Jesus. Will he turn up? Because they want to arrest him and kill him. But why do they want to do that? What is Jesus' crime? Well, astonishingly, what we see as we read through John chapter 12 is his crime is that he has raised someone from the dead, his friend Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha were were some of Jesus' closest friends. Uh, And Lazarus had got sick and died. Uh, And uh, whilst he was still sick, before he died, his sisters sent word to Jesus, who was far away, uh, and asked him to come back so that Lazarus could be healed. Jesus healed lots of people in his lifetime. Uh, And um, Jesus delayed returning. He didn't come. And Lazarus died. Uh, And when Jesus got back, Martha and Mary both met him separately and, and castigated him. If you'd been here, Jesus, Lazarus would not be dead. And Jesus himself is deeply affected by what goes on uh, it's the one time in the Bible that we chose, we're told that he cried. It's the shortest verse in the whole Bible. In John 11, Jesus wept. And yet, the next thing Jesus does after shedding tears with Mary and Martha is he goes to the tomb of Lazarus and he says, roll the stone away. And, and the people who are with him say, Jesus, I'm not sure that's a great idea, to be honest with you. He's been in there a while. By now, the smell will be pretty bad. That's what they say to him. Come on. You don't need to go in. You don't need to see him. They don't understand what he's going to do. But they, they roll away the stone, and Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And then, out of the gloomy darkness of the tomb, emerges a figure, still wrapped in the grave clothes, And Jesus says to those who are with him, take off the grave clothes and let him go. The tomb has released its icy hold on Lazarus. He is free. Let him go. But because of that, lots of people are putting their faith in Jesus, says John. Lots lots of people in the surrounding region hear about that. Well, you would, wouldn't you? 
That's not an everyday occurrence. A man back from the dead. And so, there's a crisis amongst the religious leaders. It's there in chapter 11, verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Here's the first view of salvation. What are the chief priests and the Pharisees, the religious elite, hoping to achieve? Their version of salvation is the sort of realpolitik that allows them to hang on to their way of doing things. We've got this temple, we've got this nation. It's a sort of religious conservatism that is terrified of losing its power of losing its place and its prestige. And in the face of Jesus, it's threatened. And so for the crime of raising someone from the dead and therefore becoming a focus of national hopes, they're worried that that is going to bring about a destabilizing of society and an end to the regime as they know it. To them, salvation is things staying as they are, hanging on to our religious prestige, and we won't let Jesus get in the way of it. That, to the chief priests and the Pharisees, is what salvation looks like. But then in the first event that we heard in the reading, as Mark read to us from chapter 12, there's this dinner in Bethany, just on the edge of Jerusalem. And Mary, Martha's sister, performs this act of extraordinarily costly devotion to Jesus. She has this alabaster jar of perfume, pure nard. That perhaps doesn't mean anything to us. And John says it's a very expensive perfume. Well, a pint of nard was worth the equivalent of about £30,000 in today's money. It's seriously expensive. It's probably a family heirloom. It may well be all that Mary has in the world. And she tips all of it all over Jesus. And all the way down to his feet. The bit that even the lowest slave would balk at touching. And she wipes his feet with her hair. And the whole house is filled with the smell of this perfume. And Judas... And Judas being one of Jesus' closest disciples, one of the twelve, John, looking back, can only see the one who would come to betray Jesus. says, Judas, look with me, verse 4. Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Judas has a view of salvation in mind too. Of social change, of social justice, of, uh, of somehow relieving the wants of the poor. Imagine the difference it would make, says Judas, if we could have sold this and given the money to the poor. He wants progress. He wants to win the war on poverty. Or at least that's how he presents There's this sense that maybe Jesus has come, or Judas thought at least, that Jesus has come 
to make the world a better place, to ease the suffering of the poor. And you could see why Judas would think that. He has come and he's made lepers clean, people who didn't fit in society. He's brought them in, people who were sick and dying. He's made them well and whole. Judas's view of salvation is a world made better. Social progress, social justice. It's quite at odds with the view of the chief priests and the Pharisees, isn't it? Judas wants to see things change for the better. And then there's the crowd. Welcoming Jesus with the language of kingship. Hosanna! Save us! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. They're waving, waving palm branches as people did for Simon the Maccabee, the, the one who, who, offered to, who, who promised to set Israel free from the Roman jackboot. They see it as the violent overcoming of oppression, the warrior king who will come and put down the tyrant that is Rome, whose boot is on their neck, who bring about political change and political freedom. Much perhaps in the way that the people of Ukraine today long to be freed from the oppression of Russian invasion. Look to their president, Volodymyr Zelensky, as a kind of saviour figure who by the might of military arms will drive out those who would oppress and occupy their territory. That's the kind of salvation the crowd is hoping for. Perhaps one of those views of what it would look like for the world to be made right sits well with you. Perhaps uh, you are a a social, a religious conservative who, who, who yearns that we could just hang on to the good things that were ours in the past, who is afraid of of the change that sweeps through our culture, aware of the damage that it could do. And you would hope that Jesus might turn that back. Perhaps you put your hopes in, in that change that is coming and has come and think perhaps social justice will make the world like heaven on earth. Perhaps you're someone whose people are suffering from oppression and you yearn for freedom and the overthrow of corrupt regimes. All of those things are in the minds of those who encounter Jesus. And because of that, they cannot make head or tail of who he really is. And there's a sign right in the middle that shows it. There are these two Old Testament quotes that really explain what is going on. Quotes from the Jewish scriptures, prophecies pointing forward to Jesus. And John includes them so that we can see who Jesus really is and why he really came and why the salvation that he offers is actually just too good for any of us to imagine. And the symbol right at the heart of all of it is this little donkey. 
It's rather an incongruous picture. It's there in verse uh, 14. As the people are welcoming him as a conquering king, he finds a young donkey and sits on it. And so rides through this crowd, waving their palm branches of victory on a donkey. It's like Charles in a couple of months riding to Westminster Abbey on a moped. It just doesn't make any sense. But if we look back to Zechariah chapter 9, which is the the verse that John then quotes, Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 in verse 15, we'll see what John's pointing us to and what Jesus is signaling to the crowd as he rides into Jerusalem. This is not what you think. So turn with me, if you would, to page 955, Zechariah chapter 9. And it's a good rule of thumb, whenever you find uh, something from the Old Testament scriptures quoted in the New, to look at the whole thing, not just at the verse that's being quoted. We're being pointed to more uh, than just the Old Testament speaks of a donkey, Jesus is riding riding on a donkey, see, He's the one who was promised. It's showing us what it is that's been promised. So I'm just going to read a few verses from Zechariah chapter 9, beginning with that verse, verse 9, page 6, page 955. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Three things to notice. Here's the first. This king, righteous and victorious though he is, comes humbly The symbol of the donkey, of particularly this young donkey, and John points out it's a young donkey, it's a colt, it's a foal, it's it's not even fully grown. The symbolism is of lowliness, of humility. This is not some great warlord riding into town on a charger, on some mighty horse that's going to lead him to victory. He comes trotting in on a little donkey. Humble. And in fact, that hope in military victory recedes from view as you look at this king, verse 10 of Zechariah 9. I'll take away the chariots. I'll take away the war horses. The battle bow will be broken. This is a king who doesn't conquer by military might. He doesn't do things in the ways of the world. He comes to bring not war, but peace. And not just peace for Jerusalem. And Ephraim speaks of the sort of wider Israel. He comes not just to bring peace to them. It's not a nationalistic vision. It's a global vision. He will bring his rule and his peace. Where? See the end of verse 10. From the river, that is the Euphrates, all the way to the ends of the earth. That is here. We're what the Romans used to call the ends of the earth. 
He is going to bring global peace. He is going to bring peace to all of the nations. And on the basis, verse 11, this is the third thing to note. First of all, he's humble. Secondly, he comes to bring peace, global peace. And thirdly, this all focuses around the blood, says God, of my covenant with you, which will bring freedom from the waterless pit. Which begins to sound a bit, doesn't it, like what's just happened in John chapter 11 to Lazarus. He's been set free from the grave. Now this language, again, the blood of the covenant, it's a picture of sacrifice. A picture of a a sacrificial animal dying in the place of the people. It's blood symbolizing its life given for the life of the one who makes the sacrifice. And these events in John's gospel, he keeps pointing to the fact that it's around the Passover. Now the Passover is the feast that Israel celebrates uh, to uh, rejoice in its freedom from captivity in Egypt. Again, there's that idea of being freed from captivity. uh, And the, the, the moment of their freedom comes as God sends a curse across the whole nation, the death of every firstborn son. But the people of Israel are spared that grief. Because in every household, a lamb, a Passover lamb, dies in the place of the firstborn. And their blood is spread on the lintels of the house so that God's destroying angel sees the blood that has already been shed and passes over. That's why it's called the Passover. So there's this picture of humility, ultimate global peace bringing, and freedom from captivity and and, and even freedom from death by the shedding of blood in sacrifice. So now if you turn to me to the the psalm, turn with me to the psalm that the crowd itself is chanting on page 616, 616 of the P Bibles. And we'll begin reading a little earlier than the bit that they're quoting, than the Hosanna of verse 25. Listen to the words from hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. Hosanna, Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God. And he's made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Notice again, the wider context is one of rejection. The stone the builders rejected. uh, And yet becoming the cornerstone, the basis of the whole building. An unimaginable And wonderful thing that God has done, verse 23. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes, beyond our understanding. And it ends with a procession, with bows in hand. And as these people wave their palm branches and, and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they speak so much better than they know. They think they're celebrating a coronation. And they are. 
but it's not the coronation they think. This procession is going not to a throne, but to an altar, to the place of sacrifice, to the place where the victim dies so that others might live. There's so much here in John 12 that points to that and so little time to see it. But just turn back with me to chapter 11. So we're back on page 1080. Look at the hatching of the plot to kill Jesus, first of all, in chapter 11 and verse 49. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all he says to those who are fretting about what to do about Jesus. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. The high priest, even though he doesn't really understand what he's saying, the one responsible for sacrifice in Israel says, it's best to sacrifice this one life for the sake of everyone else's. And John says he had no idea what he was saying, but he was right. Mary, overwhelmed with joy that Lazarus has been given back to her alive after she sealed him in his tomb, pours this perfume over Jesus, and Jesus says, verse 7, It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Jesus enters Jerusalem, verses 12 to 19, to the strains of the psalm that points to the sacrifice that he is going to make. With with bows in hand, join in the festal procession to the horns of the altar. And then again, the religious leaders speak better than they know in verse 19. Remember what Zechariah 9 says about how he's going to bring peace to the whole world from the river to the ends of the earth. They say to each other, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And then John, with brilliant understatement, says, you're right. Say verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus, and Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now the whole world is coming to Jesus. The Greeks representing the nations, those from the far-flung parts of the earth, nothing to do with the Jewish covenant, come looking for Jesus. And Jesus says, now. Now the whole world has come. Now is the moment. Now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. But then he explains what that glorification looks like, what his coronation will be. He talks about it in verse 32 as being lifted up from the earth. It's a word that means exalted, but it is also the word that describes his crucifixion, hanging 10 feet above the crowd. 
He says, verse 24, Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. Jesus is riding to Jerusalem to his death. Deliberately. An hour, he says, that troubles him. But verse 27 is the very reason he came. And so he prays, Father, glorify your name. And a voice comes from heaven. I've glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it and said it thundered. And some said an angel had spoken to him. What kind of salvation do you need? What kind of salvation do I need? That little moment with the voice from heaven tells us everything we need to know. We are so alienated from God by nature, so caught up in ourselves and the concerns of the world around us that even when God speaks with an audible voice from heaven, we will say, that was loud thunder, wasn't it? Even when Jesus raises a man from the dead, the religious elite will say, he must die. It's an extraordinary reaction, isn't it? To see someone who has power over life and death and say, well, we really need to bring him under control. For giving life, he must die. Judas, on seeing this costly act of devotion to the one who raises the dead, can say, that is all wrong. The crowd greeting the one who comes to bring salvation to the whole world, see him as a figure of nationalist salvation. They take the palm cross and they think, wouldn't that make an excellent sword? Come and fight for us, Jesus. We cannot make sense, even left to ourselves, of the Savior who came to us. We are that cut off from spiritual realities, that twisted and perverted by what the Bible calls sin, that turning away from God and turning in on ourselves, away from God and away from neighbor, that when, it, when God speaks from heaven, left to our own devices, we will just say, bad weather. Jesus comes to free those who are oppressed. And so he says, verse 31, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of life will be driven out. The prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is what it costs to bring human beings back to what God made them to be. This is what it costs to bring us back to our heavenly father. Jesus' own death. And in that death, he sets us free from slavery to that twist, that perversion of nature that means that even when we see good, we are capable of calling it evil. And even when we see evil, we're capable of calling it good. And if you don't believe me, think about the history of our nation. There was a time when if I asked a group of people in a place like this whether slavery was a good thing, people would just go, yeah, it's a really good thing. That's how God has ordered the world. 
that human beings should be treated as objects and sold. And a whole culture believed it. We're so capable of evil. I can never get away from... um, If you've seen the film Downfall, which is about the last days in Hitler's bunker, there's this terrifying moment when Joseph and Magda Goebbels are talking as they're in the process of murdering their own children rather than let them fall into the hands of the Russians. And Magda Goebbels turns to Joseph and says, we were trying to build something so beautiful. That was the vision of Nazi Germany. They really thought they were doing good. That's the terrifying thing about it. What can free us from a world in which we're so enslaved to evil that human beings are capable of believing that the Nazi project was beautiful? Only Jesus. He frees us from that tyranny of sin that also leads to the tyranny of death. But the promise of Jesus, verse 25, is that anyone who sees that, who hates their life, who turns to Jesus, that's not hate in the sense of despise, it's the sense of preferring what Jesus offers. It's the language of preference. Anyone who turns to him will keep their life for eternal life. The one who freed Lazarus from the tomb can free you from the tomb too. So when we hear that word Hosanna on Palm Sunday, what kind of salvation do you want God to give you? Because what he offers is bigger, more wonderful, deeper, more beautiful than you are capable on your own of imagining. It means saving you from yourself. It means saving you from the corruption and wickedness of human beings turned away from God. That means saving you from death. These are not things we would imagine for ourselves. But they are the things he died to win for us.